Welcome to this week's episode of the HS Health Tech Podcast. My name's James, one of the founders of HS, and with me this week, I have Dr. Paul Peter Tack, who is a venture partner at something called Flagship Pioneering, which creates new biotech companies. And he's also CEO of one of those companies called Kintai Therapeutics, who are looking at enteric signaling networks and essentially developing new molecules that they're calling precision enteric medicines so dr paul peter tack has over 25 years in the life sciences sector he's created and led multiple companies he's been svp and head of an immunoinflammation therapy unit at GlaxoSmithKline. he's brought multiple new mechanisms of action to gsk he was then svp of r&d chief immunology officer there and oversaw the creation of a huge portfolio of medicines in the oncology space, looking at immuno-oncology, epigenetics, and even cell and gene therapy. So Paul Peter trained as a doctor, received his medical degree at the Free University in Amsterdam, uh, got his PhD from the Leiden University Medical Center, became a rheumatologist and an immunologist, He's had multiple professorships, uh, published lots and lots of papers, over 550 of them in fact. So as you can imagine, he knows a thing or two about innovating in this area. So on the podcast we talk about lots of different things. We talk about the medicine, so lots of rheumatology, lots of immunology. We talk about the vagus nerve for those that are interested in that side of things from the clinical world. We talk about his new program, uh, Flagship Pioneering, that's creating and, and funding, in fact, these new biotech companies and the, the business model behind that and why he moved to there to make more impact from GSK. We talk about that new class of drugs called Precision Enteric Molecules that he's overseeing with Kintai Therapeutics. And we talk about something which really chimed with me very well towards the end, something that he likes to call the bloody obvious test, which holds him and, in fact, the pharma sector to account in what they're doing and make sure that there's patient voice in every part of the clinical trials and i'll leave it to him to explain that in more detail so as always you can get in touch with us via twitter at hs venture on instagram at hs.ventures you can search for me on twitter and linkedin just search james somaru so that's s-o-m-a-u-r-o-o and you can get me on instagram at j underscore soms that's s-o-m-s so guys Enjoy the podcast. So, Paul Peter, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing today? Uh, thank you very much. I'm doing very well. It's a totally beautiful day. I'm in Cambridge, UK, and it looks like the Mediterranean here. Oh, wonderful. I didn't realize you were based in Cambridge. What a wonderful, lovely part of the world. Hell, it is. Well, I live in Cambridge and Cambridge. I spent half of my time here and the other half in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Oh, wow. So, yeah, not too confusing then for the post. <laughs> exactly. Um, cool. So, Paul Peter, we've obviously had a phone call beforehand, so I've heard all about your awesome background. But, yeah, I look forward to you telling our listeners your story. So, go ahead. Yeah, well, uh, I'm, a, I'm a physician primarily, and I have to admit that I have practiced internal medicine and later rheumatology for many years, decades, in fact. And my goal in life has, in my different roles, always been to have an impact on patients' lives. That's what's really motivating me. And over time, I became an 
in addition to a treating physician, also a physician scientist. And my goal has been to translate the science into medicines for patients. So when you study medicine, I think there's one big choice that you need to uh, make, and that is, are you going to be a surgeon or are you not going to be a surgeon? Uh, for me, it was very clear. I did not want to uh, become a surgeon, so I became an internist. So I practiced general internal medicine. And then during my training, I remember during my annual review with my boss at the time, I spoke about different subspecialties and mentioned that I thought rheumatology would be the least interesting uh, medical subspecialty in internal medicine. But then later, when I was an associate professor of internal medicine at the Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands, I started to collaborate with the Department of Rheumatology. And this was the time when there was really enormous progress in the science. And it was the time that the biologics were being developed, like the TNF inhibitors, in the first place. And this collaboration formed the basis for my PhD, which was in the space of clinical immunology and rheumatology. And then I proposed to my boss at internal medicine that I would work half-time in general internal medicine, half-time in rheumatology. But um, he did not support that idea. He said, I want you to lead the intensive care unit and all, all kinds of other big plans. But I got so fascinated by the emerging science in rheumatology. There was a kind of revolution at that time that I decided to actually switch department and do a second medical specialty. And I became a, a rheumatologist. And I remember the first time that we treated patients with rheumatoid arthritis, a chronic inflammatory disorder of the joints, with these uh, anti-TNF um, antibodies, that it felt like a miracle. Some of these patients could walk right while they were just in a wheelchair before that time. And we knew that we could really impact their lives. And um, so this explains that I ultimately became a professor of rheumatology and the founding chair of the Department of Clinical Immunology and Rheumatology at the Academic Medical Center in Amsterdam. And basically, I've built that department into a big center for experimental medicine, where we try to translate ideas, molecules, science into patients, uh, uh, into medicines for patients who need much better treatments. And basically, I was wearing three hats. Uh, one, to give the best treatment of today, Second, we always wanted patients to participate in trials. We did a lot of research to develop the best treatments of tomorrow. And then third, I was also teaching and the program director for the fellowship in, in rheumatology and, and trained many of the medical specialists uh, in the Netherlands. And it has been a fantastic uh, time and I've learned a lot from my colleagues, but in particular by listening to patients. To come back to the TNF blockers, we as rheumatologists were obsessed by the joints as a rheumatologist uh, typically is, right? You want to know what is the uh, state of the inflammation in the joint. But with these new powerful medicines, the patients told us a very different story. They told us that their joints went better, but they also told us that the mind fog would disappear and the fatigue would disappear. And that really raised a strong interest in listening to the patient voice and the important lessons that we can learn there. Because it was found, in fact, that if you treat a patient with rheumatoid arthritis, with a TNF inhibitor, that you can find changes in the brain, uh, shown by functional MRI, an imaging technique to visualize the brain, 
before there were any changes in the joints. And it showed the strong power of the mind over the body and how these different systems talk to each other. And that's what patients will tell you. So I got increasingly interested in basically discovery at the interface of different medical specialties. And one of the fields that I worked on in um, academia was the field of the so-called cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. And basically it means that there's a nerve that's called the vagus nerve, which goes yeah, to your heart, to your lung, to your gut, to all kinds of organs. And it does not only play a role in, let's say, controlling uh, resting heart rate or heart rate variability and the activity of your gut. It actually also controls your immune system. And I was inspired by the work of a pioneer in uh, New York City, Kevin Tracy, who was shown in acute models of inflammation, that is vagus nerve that originates in the, in the brain may inhibit inflammation. And we did all the work in chronic models of inflammation, in preclinical models in, in the lab, and could reproduce that this is not only important in acute models of inflammation, but also in chronic inflammation. And this pathway is sometimes called now the inflammatory reflex. It means that the vagus nerve can sense inflammation in the peripheral tissues throughout the body. It leads to a signal through the brain. And then there's again a downstream signal to the spleen, which will ultimately lead to inhibition of inflammation. And then we, we played with this in the lab to validate this, that it could be a new therapy for chronic inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, like Crohn's disease, which is a chronic inflammatory bowel disease. And I thought, well, we can play in preclinical models forever. But actually, there is a device on the market that has been approved by the FDA for the treatment of therapy-resistant epilepsy. And it's a bioelectronic device. It gives an electrical stimulation of the vagus nerve. And as that was approved for epilepsy, it meant that there was a lot of data about the safety of this approach. And we decided to implant this in patients with chronic inflammatory disease, with therapy-resistant rheumatoid arthritis. And we could show that there was a profound beneficial effect in many of the patients that we treated. This is still a small study, uh, but we had patients who did not respond to anything, including TNF blockers, including other uh, biologics. So they really are therapy resistant. And some of these were basically cured with just 60 seconds of electrical stimulation of the vagus nerve per day. So this has been a very important finding. Very recently, it was reproduced independently by a group in the US, and it was just presented uh, recently at the European League Against Rheumatism meeting in Madrid. So it is really true. And this has been very important for advancing companies in the space of bioelectronics. And um, when I joined at the later stage, GSK, GlaxoSmithKline, and I will come back to that in a minute, we basically created a joint venture between GSK and Verily, which is the life sciences part of Google, and created a company called Galvani Bioelectronics, which is developing a bioelectronic approach for immune-mediated inflammatory diseases. So this is a very interesting new field where we played a key role in my academic lab, and where ultimately, in some patients, we might replace the use of 
small molecules, tablets, uh, pills, by the use of electrons as a completely new approach. And this is very appealing to, uh, to many patients because it is about the restoration of the natural balance in the human body. So I spoke about my work in academia, uh, and I've been the head of this department of clinical immunology and rheumatology in Amsterdam for 12 years. And then I thought, maybe I could have a bigger impact on patients' lives if I would join uh, the pharmaceutical industry, where I can learn uh, how to discover and develop medicines on a completely different scale. Imagine that you develop a new medicine for a common disease, you may affect the life of, of millions of patients, which is, of course, impossible as an individual uh, physician. So I joined GlaxoSmithKline, first to become the global head of research and development in immunoinflammation. So think of rheumatology, gastroenterology, dermatology, clinical immunology, etc. And we created a whole new pipeline including medicines like anti-GMCSF, which is now in late-stage development at GSK. We filed a medicine called Benlista Sub-Q for the treatment of systemic lupus, or SLE, where no other medicine has been approved during the last 50 years. And it has a consistent beneficial effect uh, on patients, and we're still trying to uh, improve the efficacy by combination therapies and built a, a whole pipeline of new um, early development uh, programs. Then later, I saw an enormous opportunity at the interface between immunoinflammation, immunology, and oncology. The big next revolution is at this moment in oncology. I spoke about the revolution that I've seen in the late 90s in rheumatology. Now in oncology, we can see that in some cases we can cure cancer by immunological intervention. This has been a dream for many years, which now becomes true. But the reality is we can still not cure all the patients, obviously. So it is the beginning of a big revolution. But I think a lot can be learned at the interface between immunology and oncology. And therefore, we created a new organizational structure at that time at GSK, where immunoinflammation, oncology, and also infectious diseases all came together in a cluster of therapy area units that I oversaw. And this has led to, I think, significant progress in the pipeline where we revived uh, the discovery engine in oncology uh, with a strong focus on um, immuno-oncology, including the checkpoint inhibitors that get so much attention at this moment, and rightly so, uh, epigenetics, and also cell and gene therapy approaches. So uh, after a little bit more than, than seven years at uh, GSK, I thought we could probably be more effective if we leverage the external world. Imagine that you work for a pharmaceutical company and you have, let's say, 10,000 scientists, which is a huge number. Then it also means that most of the scientists in the world in the biomedical uh, field do not work for your company. And you will need to get access to their, to their brains, to their minds, to their ways of thinking, to their discoveries. So there's a very strong need for externalization, for working with the external environment. And of course, we had traditional collaborations. I thought at the time we had more collaborations with the external world than any other company in the world, also outside the biomedical field. 
but we also started to experiment with completely new models of collaboration. One of the programs was very interesting, uh, focused on immunometabolics, which is the interface between immunology, which is, I think, the key specialty that's relevant for any therapy area at this moment, and, metab and metabolism. And it has become clear that you can see metabolites as mediators of immunology and of inflammation. And these pathways are druggable. You can translate them into medicines to interfere with these pathways and to, for example, activate the immune system in cancer or to inhibit the activity of the immune system in autoimmunity, like rheumatoid arthritis, like inflammatory bowel disease, like dermatological diseases such as psoriasis. And, but this was still early science. And one of the key drivers of this field has been Luke O'Neill, who is a professor at uh, Trinity in Dublin. He was a member of the external immunology board. He became a member of the immunology catalyst. He brought his own postdoc. So he and his scientists worked for a year in our facilities at GSK. And then we thought, well, we need to invest in this field of immunometabolism. How shall we do that? It's still early science. And we decided to bring the best scientific academic minds, like Luke O'Neill, together with the rigor of decision-making of the world of venture capital, together with the deep knowledge of what the medicine looks like, what is needed in late-stage development, the best quality of chemistry of GSK. And therefore, we created a new company, which is called Citrix Therapeutics. And it is now based in Oxford, as we call it here in Cambridge, UK, the other place. And we have decided that we would not control this as a pharmaceutical company, but that we would take a minority share. And the um, founders, including Luke O'Neill and myself, uh, would be intimately involved. I would sit at the table on behalf of pharmaceutical industry, not to control them, but to give advice. This is what could be of interest, right? If you really translate this science into a potential medicine, this is what is needed to develop it further. Uh, this is what we could offer in terms of quality of chemistry. Uh, big pharmaceutical companies are very good uh, at chemistry. And that's how we have evolved this as a potentially new model for drug discovery for the pharmaceutical company. What I would have loved to do is create, uh, let's say, 30 companies like Citrix as a new discovery model. And you could imagine that they are strategically aligned, that you bring this very rigorous culture of decision-making or venture capital, that you actually bring in external capital to fund more ideas that you, than you could uh, otherwise fund. And that if it would be of interest in maturing, then the pharmaceutical company would sit at the table and would be the first to say, well, we would like to buy this program, or perhaps we would like to buy this company, but in a competitive way. If another pharmaceutical company would say, well, we, we pay more for it, then they would get it. Right? So it is again about not controlling it, but sitting at the table and creating the best opportunities. So this has been an amazing experience. But then I decided to move because I started to talk to an organization based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is called Flagship Pioneering. And it's actually not a venture capital organization. It is an, an organization that creates new prototype biotech companies. And this is based on an almost unreasonable hypothesis. What if we could change this pathway and 
they could resolve this big problem in medicine or in agriculture. What would it look like? And then if we believe there's an enormous opportunity, then there's a small investment, some very super smart uh, scientists from the flagship community will work on basically trying to reject the hypothesis based on science. But if it survives that stage, then it becomes uh, a so-called new co, a new company. Uh, flagship pioneering will put funding behind it, series A. And it's still done in stealth mode, so you don't hear about this, the company matures. And if that goes well, then at a certain stage, an external CEO is recruited, who will then focus on securing series B. Flexi pioneering will still invest and really build the company for the future. So it's not about early exit strategies. It is about how can we really build a discovery biotech that will resolve this big problem in society. And um, then I thought, well, this is actually what I had in mind when I created the immunology network. And the first company that I created as kind of co-creation that resulted from this immunology network was Citrix Therapeutics. This idea of creating a collection of strategically aligned biotech companies. This is in many ways what Flexi Pioneering is already doing. So I joined them. I'm a venture partner there. And um, I have to say the term venture partner may be a bit uh, misleading because we don't consider ourselves a venture capital organization, uh, but we create companies uh, uh, as I just described. And then I decided, and then I, be I became the CEO and the president of one of these companies, which is called Kintai Therapeutics. Wow. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in a second. What an incredible journey. I mean, you, you starting off in academia, obviously having this yearning to do far more with the knowledge that you were getting. You've obviously then got into the corporate world through that. You've been involved in creating new companies. You've been involved in all this kind of bioelectrics and things. And on one hand, I just want to say congratulations and, and probably not for the reason you think, but the very first few minutes of what you talked about there is probably the, actually the first rheumatology lecture I've actually sat through and listened to um, because you made it incredibly interesting. And I think for me, the most interesting thing about what you're doing or what you did in that early stage of your career is that you weren't satisfied with just the learning. You weren't satisfied with just the academia. You seem always to have had the desire to use the knowledge to make a change. And I think... The most fascinating bit for me is this. So this research that you did around the vagus nerve, and then all of a sudden this light bulb moment of, okay, here we, here we can have some, some, you know, bioelectric stimulation and we can force the immune system to cure itself essentially. And you said something interesting, which was that with the bioelectrics companies, you know, with the, the creation of the company Galvani, which is a mixture of Google and GSK, some, you know, incredible mm -hmm. powerhouses. You then used the phrase, replacing pills with electrons yes. i think that is fascinating what's the potential then if we're if we're talking about replacing pills with electrons what what is the future there yeah that that's a great question um of course i don't know the answer because we can't look into the future with certainty but it has become absolutely clear that what we have done and what we've discovered and done in rheumatoid arthritis is basically the demonstration of a proof of principle that's relevant for uh, well, maybe most of the textbook of medicine. Uh, it's clearly relevant for chronic inflammatory diseases. There's no reason to believe why this would only be relevant in rheumatoid arthritis. And actually, it's quite interesting because 
as far as we know, the inflamed tissue in the joints of rheumatoid arthritis patients or the joints in general, which is called the synovial tissue, is actually not innervated by the vagus nerve. Uh, so it's pretty amaz <laughs> amazing when you think about it. So the mechanism is there is a signal probably going ultimately to the spleen where the immune cells uh, in the spleen start to exhibit uh, different functional properties to become more anti-inflammatory and they circulate. They migrate to other sites of inflammation like the synovial tissue, but equally this may be relevant for other conditions like uh, Crohn's disease, where there's still a big unmet need, right? These patients have uh, abdominal pain and bloody diarrhea and uh, tremors and fatigue, and uh, it's, that's a big problem. There are now two, at least two studies suggesting that um, vagus nerve stimulation also works in Crohn's disease. Uh, it is possible that this will also be relevant in other chronic um, inflammatory diseases. For example, where the central nervous system is involved, like in multiple sclerosis. People believe that there may be a role in metabolic syndrome, uh, so conditions characterized by obesity and diabetes, hyperlipidemia, um, potentially there might be a role in cancer. So again, this is all extremely early discovery and early science. It all needs much more work. But we do believe that these mechanisms are, are relevant for a whole variety of diseases. Uh, I don't believe that bioelectronics is going to uh, resolve every, med any, uh, every medical problem. Uh, we will probably use multiple modalities, right? We will still uh, use small molecules, tablets or pills. We will probably still use uh, biologics or big proteins that you need to administer through an injection. Uh, of course, there's very exciting data in the field of cell and gene therapy. Ultimately, we will use different modalities. And uh, just reflecting on my own study in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, where we gave them um, vagus nerve stimulation for one to four minutes per day. Uh, some patients uh, showed a very remarkable response. Some patients did not respond at all, which is true for any um, therapy that we give in these conditions. There are no treatments where everybody will respond, in part because these so-called diseases are not single entities. In fact, they are syndromes consisting of different subsets of diseases. And one of the things we will need to do is to find out, can we predict who are going to respond well to a bioelectronic uh, intervention? Who are the patients who are going to respond to small molecules, etc., in the context of personalized or individualized medicine or precision medicine? I mean, what I like about it is that you, I mean, I think it's a phrase that, that I've either seen read or that you mentioned is that it restores the natural balance. So again, it's, 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 I, I love things that are, that are bringing things away from, you know, just prescribing pills for everything. So be that a digital therapeutic, or in this case, be that, you know, a bioelectric stimulation, you're actually just forcing, you know, the, your own human body to try and solve the problem, which I think is definitely the direction of travel that patients or consumers, whatever you want to de describe them as, that's the direction of travel that I think people want right now. So yeah, I'm hugely in favor of, of, of things like that. And I think, yeah, I, th I think they're, I think they're incredible. I mean, with, with Kintai, obviously on your, your new company, is there any of that thinking there? What was, where did, where did that idea come from? And just sort of explain a little bit about, about Kintai. Yeah. Well, yes, because I think the example that I gave you about Vegas nerve stimulation is very much about a holistic view 
on disease and health. It's about an integrated biology approach. approach. Yeah. And I think at Kintai Therapeutics, which is a flagship pioneering company, we take that even to, to a higher level. This is about the interconnected biology of the gut. And we are not a gastroenterology company necessarily. We are also focused on gastroenterology. But we see the, the gut as a command center, a signaling network with signals throughout the body that are critical to maintain health and to fight disease. And there are three major components of this um, interconnected biology of the gut or the command center, which are first the so-called autonomic nervous system, uh, sorry, the enteric nervous system. So this is about the nervous system in the gut. And there are hundreds of millions of neurons in the gut. So in the small intestine only, you can find 100 million neurons, which are a critical component of the neurological system. And that is as many as you can find in the spinal cord, which is a key component of the central nervous system. And these neurons in the gut talk to the brain. Right? Sometimes the, the enteric nervous system is called the secondary brain. And from an evolution point of view, you might even call it the primary brain. That's where it started. So that's one. So we are focused on this um, link between the enteric nervous system and the central nervous system in the brain. Second, I spoke about the immune system. It's important to realize that 70 to 80% of the immune cells at any time point are found in the gut. Uh, and it makes a lot of sense because the gut is the place where you are exposed to the external environment even more than on the skin. Uh, based on the surface area of the, of the gut. And these immune cells in the gut circulate. They migrate. They don't just stay there. And very similar to what I described for the mechanism of action of vagus nerve stimulation in chronic inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, you can change the functional properties of immune cells at one side to exert an anti-inflammatory effect on another side. In other words, it is possible to develop small molecules that you would take as a tablet that will change the functional properties of the immune cells in the gut and thereby improve peripheral inflammation. So that's the second component of this um, enteric signaling network. The first was the enteric nervous system, second, the, the gut uh, immune system, and the third is the gut microbiome. So we read almost every day now about the importance of the microbiome, the whole collection of microorganisms that you carry in your body to stay healthy. And 95% of the microbiome resides in the gut. And these are not just innocent bystanders. In fact, we have like one and a half kilogram of bacteria in our gut. And these uh, bacteria and other microorganisms produce mediators like metabolites that interfere with the human cells and that, that are really critical to stay healthy. And this system is dysfunctional in many diseases and many disease areas. So that's the third component that um, Kinta Therapeutics is focused on. And we look at this in an integrated way. And we see this as a signaling network that, that all these systems talk to each other. And we try to modulate this anterior signaling network through chemistry. That means we develop medicines that are tablets or pills 
that are inspired by the lessons that we've learned based on the very deep analysis in a region-specific way, which means that we look at the different parts of the guts separately and try to understand what happens in the, in the upper part compared to a more downstream part, compared to even more downstream part. And we find that it's all very different. And this is a very rich source of drug discovery. And Kinta Therapeutics was founded um, less than three years ago and has already a pipeline of more than 10 disease programs, which is, I think, probably unprecedented in such a short period of time. We expect to be in the clinic with our first medicine um, already in the first quarter of next year, so in 2020, uh, with a medicine for ulcerative colitis. So I spoke about Crohn's disease as an example of chronic inflammatory bowel disease. The other big example would have been ulcerative colitis. So this affects the colon. And we have developed a medicine that we believe will be at least 50% more effective than the current first line of, um, of treatment, which is 5-ASA, 5-amino salicylates. So this is a timeline between idea and being in the clinic in humans of three years. I think that this has not been done before. And we're quite confident that with the mechanism of action that the probability of success is higher than what you would typically see at this stage of development. The second program that will go into the clinic already next year is in metabolic syndrome. Uh, I spoke briefly about metabolic syndrome, which comprises obesity, uh, hyperlipidemia, and impaired glucose tolerance, or pre-diabetes or diabetes. And it has become clear that obesity is a driver not only of, of um, uh, let's say, diabetes, for example, but it also increases the risk of cancer. Uh, we have shown in my academic life that if you have people who are at risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis based on their O2 antibody profile, so they have immunological abnormalities that you can measure in the blood, that if these people who have a chance of about 40 to 50% of developing rheumatoid arthritis, so inflammation of the joints within two years, that if these people do not smoke and they've never smoked and they are not obese, then they do not develop rheumatoid arthritis. So obesity is also involved in promoting a pro-inflammatory state associated with many autoimmune diseases, including uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So we try to uh, develop a medicine for metabolic syndrome that will be tested already in the last part of next year. We have selected a mechanism that we believe will be safe uh, based on uh, biological data. We know that if you get that molecule at the right place in the body, that it should be well tolerated based on pre-existing evidence. Um, and um, it's important to realize that one third of the world population is overweight or obese, not only in the so-called developed countries, but also in developing countries. And it's a huge problem. And there are no approved medicines that are safe and that lead to sustained weight loss available at this moment. And then after that, we have other programs that will go into the clinic already one year later in a condition called primary progressive multiple sclerosis, neurological disease, and another program in chronic kidney disease, probably independent of the underlying cause. We have identified a mechanism that worsens chronic kidney disease in any form, independent of the etiology, independent of how it starts, 
and we believe we can break that cycle based on preclinical research. So then there are several programs behind that. So this has been a very exciting and rich source of drug discovery. Uh, for example, the gut microbiome could be seen as a kind of forgotten organ. Um, and we try to leverage the knowledge of this uh, powerful organ to be inspired to develop new medicines. Similarly, for the enteric nervous system, it's a very new field, very rich source of drug discovery uh, and the immune system as well. Mm. So I just want to talk about the business model then. Well, I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about technology and I want to talk about the business model. So yeah. obviously for, for, a, for a company that's, that's going after the gut biome and to try and discover new drugs, you're going to have to front load quite a lot of the research and the work. So I imagine that, that there are quite a, you know, big sums of money involved at, you know, at the end of the day, a drug discovery company is always going to be that way. So yeah. there's always going to be a question of return on investment for any investors that come in. Yeah. So I'm just intrigued then as to when you're thinking about starting this company, how, how do you see that business model? How do you sell that business model to investors? Yeah. And what is your expected ROI? If, because you sit on both sides of the table here, because as a venture yeah. partner for flagship, you sit on that side of the table, although I agree it's a, it's a slightly different model. And then as Kintai, you're on the other side, you've been on GSK side. So yeah. I'm just interested just in general then for a drug discovery company, what are the different value propositions there? What is the competition like? How do people view return on investment and, and do yeah. people spread their bets or do people, you know, double down on one particular thing that they, that they yeah. can help or, you know, what, what's the, what's the situation there? Yeah. Uh, I think it has become clear during the last few years that if you invest in a, a completely innovative approach, if you try to address a very significant scientific and medical problem or more general, a big problem for, uh, for society, like uh, getting, a more effective uh, approach to getting food to feed the, the world population. If you really invest uh, in this in a highly innovative way, addressing a very big unmet need, and you do it as a platform rather than a very small pipeline, that you can create a very interesting uh, business model for investors. Uh, as evidenced, I think, by the success of Flexi Pioneering, uh, if you look at their return on investment, it's very high. They've been very successful. Uh, when we just think about the, 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 the last big IPO uh, last year in December, which was Moderna. This is a flagship pioneering uh, discovery uh, by the company, the largest IPO in history. The previous largest um, uh, IPO uh, in the biotech history was Rubius, actually in the same year, also a flagship pioneering company. <laughs> uh, so there's no doubt that this model is extremely successful. The people looking are looking at flagship pioneering. Your flagship LPs must be so pleased. <laughs> well, yes, they, they got very good returns. And meanwhile, they help to address very significant problems in society. Uh, it's, uh, it's, so it's great when this goes hand in hand. Uh, so why is that? I spoke already about the uh, innovation, the almost unreasonable questions that are being addressed, but that then in a very rigorous way are tested, uh, vigorous uh, decision-making based on uh, very strong science. And I think Flagship has been outstanding in eliminating all the noise in the system. Mm -hmm. So for example, in the board of a company like Kinta Therapeutics, 
there's no representation of venture capital capitalists uh, representing different companies with different views on what an exit strategy would look like. In fact, we, we never speak about an exit strategy or hardly ever. We are speaking about what is the best to do for the company? How can we build a real company for the future? How can we resolve very big problems and thereby we create a lot of value? So I think the decision making, the speed, getting the really adequate uh, resources. And that is quite different, right? We, we built a broad portfolio, which also from a financial perspective helps to de-risk um, uh, the risk of the company. You can have a highly risky um, program in one disease, but if you have 20 uh, programs that are in part unrelated, except that they are the result of the same discovery uh, platform, then the overall risk comes down quite significantly. Uh, and therefore you need to have investors who have the same vision, who are willing to make long-term investments, who understand that it, we won't have an exit within uh, one or two years, but it, it takes time to see which are the winners in the platform, which are the, the uh, programs that are less likely to win. How can we make sure that we really stop these programs early on based on early killer experiments, et cetera. So this has been an extremely successful model, which explains that with a company like Kintai, we have at this moment about 70 people. Um, so it's not like a big pharmaceutical company, although it's a big biotech company that's uh, growing very fast. Uh, this small company has built an just amazing portfolio with, within three years. I mean, half a year ago, we had 35 people. So most of the time there were far less people. Mm. And it is a very cost effective uh, approach that now that we see that this platform really, uh, um, de really delivers, uh, we are ramping up the investments and, and backing the winners big time. That's really cool. And I just want to talk about the technology then. So it's, it sounds to me like it's going to be what a mixture of, you know, computational biology, artificial intelligence, machine learning in order to get these things done. Can you explain a little bit more about the technology involved behind what's going on here? Yeah, um, I, in, 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 uh, in general terms, because part of it is a trade secret. But I think that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the key components. One is the integrated view on biology. We don't just look at one system. We look at biology in a very holistic way. The second is we look at the gut in a region-specific way, uh, which nobody has done before. And it has helped us uh, when we compare our uh, expanded uh, proprietary methods to conventional approaches, we've been able to double the known um, biodiversity of the gut microbiome uh, between human individuals compared to what is known in the literature. And we have been able to identify a very large number of new genes, um, 44,000 newly discovered genes on a biochemical level. We have identified close to 20,000 protein families, including reactions that have never been described before in specific uh, bacterial species. On a metabolite level, which is very important from the drug discovery point of view, we have identified site-specific profiles of more than 1,200 small molecules, including 422 previously uncharacterized compounds. So this has been a very rich source of drug discovery. And then, as you picked up already, uh, if you look at this in an integrated biology way and you look at different parts of the gut, it leads to an incredible amount of data. So indeed, there's a very strong focus on computational biology and artificial intelligence to translate all this knowledge into 
chemistry. And that's the, the other key component of our technology. We have invented a new class of small molecules, which we have called precision anterior medicines or TEM compounds. And there are two important dimensions to these small molecules. One is they are inspired by uh, the enteric signaling network and they can include metabolites that were previously unknown. And the second is these precision enteric medicines are activated in specific parts of the body exactly where we want them to be activated based on the local environment, the region-specific environment in the gut, which makes it possible to develop a medicine for ulcerative colitis that will be activated specifically in the colon. And thereby, it, um, it of course, improves the, the benefit risk for the patient. We are able to have these pathways activated in such a way that you can basically deliver or release metabolites into the circulation, metabolites that would be otherwise unstable and that you could not administer to, uh, to patients. You could use this approach to interfere with the neurons in the gut, to improve neurological disease in the brain, without even the need for these small molecules to pass the so-called blood-brain barrier, barrier that you um, need to pass with conventional approaches. Uh, you can use this approach to increase the levels of the medicine uh, in conditions like non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, huge uh, problem, uh, by making sure that the levels of the medicine are specifically increased in the liver, the site of action. So this is another very important component of our technology, which is the precision enteric medicine uh, platform. It, it, it fascinates me that in... 2019 after you know so much has already been done and understood about the human body and and creating medicines and things that i've got someone here that's now just in like created a new class of drugs called precision enteric medicines i, I, I think that's fascinating it sort of suggests just even the numbers there and the data that you're collecting you know of just how much more can be done and I, and I was just looking at my notes actually from our previous call and um i was going to ask you about how you think about creating a new drug or how you think about creating a new class of drug and i've just written something here called the bloody obvious test <laughs> can you explain to me what that is <laughs> <laughs> well uh, absolutely uh, because we could ask the question if we develop so many programs right, where we go into the clinic with, let's say, 10 disease programs. How are you going to develop that? And I think that needs to be done through what I call experimental medicine. So basically, the ultimate goal is, of course, to uh, increase the probability of success or to reduce, as it's called in pharmaceutical industry, attrition, attrition rates. And in particular, you need to reduce attrition in late stage development, when the hundreds of millions of dollars kick in, because it's very expensive to do large clinical trials in a highly regulated uh, environment. So there are different ways to reduce attrition or to increase your probability of success. One is to focus on better therapeutic targets. Second is to develop higher quality molecules with better physical chemical properties, for example. And I think these precision enteric medicines have very clear advantages, as I just uh, laid out. But the third is to fail early on if a medicine is unlikely to be a winner. And that is the world of experimental medicine. And basically, in these studies, you 
conduct small, high density of data clinical trials, where you try to ask questions like, do we really hit the pathway that we try to hit? Does it translate into a change in the downstream molecular signature that is known to be associated with clinical improvement? In other words, are there biomarkers that reflect common final pathways that, that are known to be associated with uh, a beneficial effect of this medicine? And third, and I think that's kind of unique in experimental medicine, we also bring in the patient voice in every stage of discovery and development. And so in the clinical trials, that means we will see whether there are trends towards clinical improvement, whether patients actually start to feel better. And although these studies are not in a conventional uh, way, from a statistical point of view, powered to address these questions separately, we will look at the evidence in a holistic way. If you have a study uh, with, let's say, 25 patients per arm, you really hit the pathway that you believe you need to hit with this medicine. But then you look at the downstream common final pathways known to be associated with improvement, if that is available for that specific disease area, and you don't see a change. And patients indicate they don't feel better at all. Then you don't need traditional uh, statistics. You don't, you don't need the p-value. That is about the BOT, the bloody obvious test. If that's all <laughs> negative, then you need to discontinue that program because it might become a, a medicine that would be approved based on hundreds of patients, but it's not a therapy that's going to change the world. It's not a therapy that will change the life of patients in, an, in a dramatic uh, way. And it won't be a big commercial success either. And I spoke earlier during this call about the effect of TNF blockers. We participated uh, at Leiden University Medical Center at the time in the first uh, clinical trial with infliximab, which is the anti-TNF antibody that, that was later approved and became very successful. We knew even, although it was still placebo controlled after a few patients, that there was an effect that we had never seen before. That's the kind of effects that we want to see with experimental medicine. And if it's all negative, we will stop the program we will have a little celebration of, uh, at Kinta Therapeutics because we asked the scientific question mm. and we arrived at the answer in the most efficient way. And from a scientific perspective, it doesn't matter whether it's positive or negative. If you arrive there in the right way and then translate that into rigorous decision making so that you stop wasting resources, that you stop exposing patients actually from an ethical point of view to a medicine that will never be totally transformational then you can free up the resources to, um, to really support the potential winners. So this is a concept of experimental medicine and what I call dynamic portfolio management. In a very agile, adaptive way, with relatively small numbers, you try to find out early on which are the medicines that are unlikely to be the winners, stop them and enrich the portfolio and increase the overall probability of success of your remaining portfolio. I think that's a really nice message to end on the, the the BOT, simply because you know pharma can get quite a bad name. You know, there's hundreds of millions of dollars you know mentioned in every sentence when it comes to investments and drug discovery and all these different things. But I think at the end of the day, when there's innovators in the background that are just genuinely asking themselves the question, 
does this make life better for patients? Do patients actually feel better? Is this drug actually doing what it's meant to be doing? And then we, you know, the public or, or people listening, and you know, these people now know that at the end of the day, people are asking themselves these questions. I think that's just a really important message to get out there that at the end of the day, this isn't arbitrary. This is, yes, there is a commercial reason behind it. But at the end of the day, as we always say at HS, you know, impact comes from scale. There's no point developing something that only makes a few people feel better that you're not going to be able to get on the shelves because at the end of the day, it will essentially cripple a company that's trying to do a very good thing in the future in, in the grand scheme of things and it is complex there are a heck of a lot of complexities to it but uh, it's refreshing to know there are people like yourself in the background that are at least you know holding the system to account and even you know as you say celebrating a scientific discovery that yes indeed we've gone down this route it hasn't worked but at the end of the day look that's linear now nobody else needs to spend money on this process to figure out that it doesn't work we can all move forward as a scientific community as a community of drug discoverers as a community of people that are you know working hard to find these things new things for patients you know so it, it's very very refreshing from my point of view to to hear that the that that morality does sit in the background um and yeah i think that's great and it's, it's one of the ways to be much more successful than, uh, let's say, con more conventional uh, companies or organizations. And you need to take into account all these aspects, right? You need to work with the best people. Uh, and at Kinta Therapeutics, I've been very uh, deeply impressed by the quality of the people, some of the best people I've ever worked with. Uh, very strong leadership, right? Some of the best scientists, but also the culture, a really collaborative culture focused on quality, rigorous decision making and if you eliminate uh, a lot of noise from the system you can become far more um, efficient and far more successful awesome so paul peter listen the way we end these podcasts is i hand back over to you to kind of just summarize a little bit about yourself a little about bit about what you're up to at the moment um, with Kintai and if you've got any asks of our audience feel free to ask those now but I'd actually like you to just give us a little bit of advice for our kind of CEOs listening of startups be that in digital health or in biotech people that might be trying to follow in the same footsteps as you with things like flagship and approaching organizations like that so yeah if you could just summarize a little bit about yourself a little bit about Kintai any asks of our audience and any advice you've got for our listeners yeah, well, uh, I think the central theme in my career is to improve the life of patients. I'm a physician and I'm a physician scientist uh, with deep clinical experience. I've, over time, I've always followed the science and I've always asked myself the question, what could I do next actually to become even more effective, have a bigger impact? And that's how I moved from uh, the clinic into academia where I started to train people do a lot of science uh, in academia and then uh, took it to a different level um, a much bigger scale at GlaxoSmithKline in big pharma started several companies uh, where I thought it would make sense to create a biotech company rather than uh, pursue the research in-house and an example uh, would be Citrix Therapeutics which, which focuses on a completely new area of immunometabolics, which could have a big impact in oncology and autoimmunity. And then later it became clear to me that in pharma, I think, on the, generally speaking, the return on investment in discovery is getting very close to zero. Uh, and I would expect it might well go into the minus. And there are many reasons for it, but one of, of it is that you need a different mindset 
in early discovery compared to a highly regulated, process-oriented, late-stage development program or marketing and commercialization. And there are very few people who can really flex their style uh, from the highly regulated late-stage development um, uh, needs to the almost organized chaos that you need to create to foster creativity and to be agile in terms of decision-making. And therefore, I think there's a clear opportunity to reconsider what the discovery model in pharma should look like. And one could be actually a strategically aligned collection of biotech companies that are characterized by rigorous decision-making, the best uh, scientific minds, including those from academia, giving them freedom and making sure that they can fail fast, both in the lab and in the clinic, in the context of experimental medicine. I think flagship pioneering really got this right. And that's why I joined them to lead a company which focuses on completely new biology, which is the interconnected biology of the gut, the gut as a command center. And this is relevant for basically every therapy area. And I'm super excited that we are now going to test our hypothesis with a new class of medicines that we invented, the precision enteric medicines, uh, already in the next year. Uh, do I have any advice? Uh, I think in early discovery, uh, be open-minded, look at the interface of different fields. Often the biggest discoveries are just next to where you would expect it. It's a concept that I call lateral thinking. And when you just look at the interface of different fields, just next to your specific area, there may be a higher chance that you will find something that's really interesting. But we need to focus on the best science. We need to create the best culture. But leadership is also relevant. You need to bring in strong leadership teams for, um, for any new CEOs. I would say it's a top priority to build a very strong team. And the, the, they need to realize that what got them to that place may not be necessarily what will get them to the next level. So some of the behaviors of the previous careers may need to be unlearned. And that is always um, a challenge for everybody. And I think every CEO needs to ask, himself or herself, that same question. How can you get ready for your next role? I think it's important to make decisions. Uh, nothing is worse than indecisiveness. It's a way to destroy a lot of value. And ideally, I would like to make decisions when I've seen some data. It needs to be fact-driven, ideally data-driven. And I think it's important to uh, not to lose too much time. Uh, so speed over precision is, is sometimes a very important uh, advice. Then it's important to get all the stakeholders involved, right? Um, you need to have not only your strong leadership team that really works in a collaborative way, but all, that also will challenge each other. You also need to make sure that the whole company gets involved, that you work in the most optimal way with the board, uh, who can be very important sources of knowledge and insight and challenge. Uh, so orchestrate the, the, the stakeholders is, is um, important. And then there's a very important uh, concept of trust. Uh, it's very important to build high levels of trust in a company. And one of the defectors to focus on is to always deliver. Uh, if people say, well, I own this decision, I own this process, then you need to make sure that it's clear, that it's time-bound, and that people do deliver, because otherwise it's a huge uh, uh, trust-breaker. So there are many, many things we could talk about. Uh, everybody will do it in his or her own way. Uh, but this is how I've tried to advance the science and try to develop better treatments. So Paul Peter, um, for those people that want to get in touch with you, does Kintai have a website that they can find? And do you have any contact details? 
yes, absolutely. So the website of Kintai is www.kintaitx.com. So that is K-I-N-T-A-I-T-X.com. And it's easy to search for my name, Paul Peter Tuck, at Twitter. And um, also Paul Peter Tuck is on LinkedIn.